Well, good morning. Let's begin with a prayer this morning as we uh, break into God's Word. God, I I give thanks this morning for uh, you being a God who is all-powerful. We hail your name this morning as King. This morning, God, I pray uh, for those that Bruce has mentioned, God, for the difficulties and the, the need we have, God, for you to show your power in this church. Uh, God, we just ask this morning that you would be present among us, uh, that you would impart your comfort where it's needed and your encouragement where it's needed and your challenge where it's needed. This morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Well, there are certain beliefs that I've held since probably before birth. I was born into a Christian family. My dad was a preacher. So there were certain phrases that just were part of growing up in that kind of environment. That God is good, right? Uh, That Jesus is Lord. I grew up saying hallelujah and amen, knowing Hebrew and Greek before I ever knew a lot of English. Uh, And so there's something unique about growing up the way that I did. There were these confessions that came so simply to me. One of those confessions is that God is all-powerful. Now, there was a real fancy way to say that that I learned, and it was really helpful in Bible classes to sound real smart. Uh, God is omnipotent. You may have heard that phrase. I still don't know fully what that means, I don't think, but, but that's a, a, a confession that we would make. We had a song that went along with this idea, right? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. You're, you're supposed to clap after that, right? I mean, you all know how this goes for those of you who grew up in a church experience. These were confessions that came very easy, but what I saw was, over my life, these confessions that I knew and was taught early on were then challenged in different experiences that I faced in my life. And that confession, it comes straight out of Scripture, this idea that God is all-powerful. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew Uh, Matthew 19, verse 26. These words come right out of the mouth of Jesus, in fact. Matthew 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I believe that. I claim that promise growing up. A God who was all-powerful, who could work at any moment to do whatever he wanted and needed to do. But these were simple truths that were passed on from my parents, and it wasn't until much later that those truths weren't just things that were inherited beliefs, they became beliefs of my own. Can anyone say amen to that? This experience of, good, you know the Greek words too, I'm so glad to hear that, amen. I mean, we we grow up and we're able to confess things, but there's a difference between confessing those things as kids and, and as adults. And some of you have the the gift of simple faith. That's a gift that the Holy Spirit, I think, gives to some people. They're just not into the questions, and faith comes simply. And let me just say, we need you in this church. We need those people with the gift of faith that faith just comes so simply to. But my journey's been different. Faith's not just this simple ascent. As life went on, I was challenged. I had faith struggles. And I still continue to ask a lot of those questions today. 
I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but I want to ask you another question to start off this morning. Have you ever thought about some of the Bible characters in Scripture, not as they are told in Scripture, but as they were born and growing up? Have you ever just imagined what some of them would have been like as kids? Like Abraham, for instance. I can't imagine the guy without a beard and, you know, white hair. The father of many nations. But he was a kid at one point, right? He grew up, his dad was an idol maker, Scripture tells us. He grew up in a different background than where he ended up. Or think about Rahab. Her profession, well, let's just say her profession was different later on than what she grew up knowing. She was a, a girl who ran and played and knew people and never imagined her life would end up where it did. Or, or think about Peter. Like, he is the last kid you would want in your Sunday school class, right? And you ask the question, you're grateful there's at least response. But it's like, Peter, just... Just quiet down for a moment. Let other kids answer, and you're wrong half the time anyway. Just take a minute before you talk, right? Another one of those that I think about is Job. Job, the story comes right before Psalms, of course, at the center of Scripture. And I, I know Job as this second half of life character. I know him as this guy who was a great guy, it seems, and goes through all kinds of trouble. And then we read about his story a little bit later on. And I want to think today about Job, because I have to imagine, I'm just wondering, did Job grow up in uh, following God? We don't know the story of Job and his background. All we know is when we open up to Job chapter 1, he's described as a blameless man. He's a man who feared God and shunned evil. We know that he had ten kids. He had seven sons, three daughters, and a a wife. He had thousands of, of cattle. He had many servants at his disposal. But his kids didn't follow God as deeply and seriously as Job did. In fact, his kids like to throw a party here and there. So Scripture tells us early on that every morning Job would get up and he would sacrifice an offering for his kids. Some of you know and understand this. Some of you are walking through that prayer every morning, praying that your kids will will make a turn at some point. Maybe some of you have seen them come back and had a prodigal story in your own Story. That's where Job finds himself. His kids are not following God, not honoring God, and he is sacrificing every morning so that whatever sins were committed the night before, they'd be covered with a new morning that came. So this Job guy's a great guy, family that's not really working out, but then the book of Job lets us in on a conversation beyond what Job knows at the time. God's really proud of Job, which sounds like a good thing, but then you read more of the story. He's proud of Job. He knows him to be a blameless man. But the Satan, as Job tells the story, as the book tells us, the Satan shows up to God in this scene and says, all right, you think he's following you, but let me tell you why he's following you. He's following you because he has a perfect life. If you were to take away all the great things he has, he would, he would curse your name, God. God says, all right, you've got a shot. You do whatever you need to do. You just can't touch Job in the process. You, got, you can't harm him in any way. So within a few hours, Job gets news about all of his cattle being taken, about his sons and daughters dying in the midst of this windstorm, and and his life comes to a, a stopping point. And yet in the midst of that, he didn't curse God. He continues to actually praise God in the midst of these difficulties. Well, the story goes on, and God's proud of Job again, right? God says, have you seen Job? Look at him. He, he didn't falter. He didn't curse me. No, he's done just fine. He's blameless still. And as the story goes on, Satan says, yeah, but if you would cause harm to his body, if you'd allow that to happen, he certainly wouldn't do that. He cursed you to your face, God. God says, all right, you can do anything you need to do to Job. Just don't kill him. Preserve his life. 
So the story goes on, and Job has sores from head to toe that Satan, the Satan has caused him to have. And in the midst of all that, he still proclaims, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away, but I'm going to be constant in my praise of God. He does not turn his heart and life away from him. Now Job's wife thinks he should. Job's wife's telling him, just curse God and die, Job. A lot of help from his wife in that circumstance, right? But things are not going well. And yet Job remains constant. The scripture says Job did not sin. And this happened in the first two chapters of the book of Job. But as the story goes on, for the next 35 chapters, we read about Job's conversation with a bunch of his friends. Well, they're really good friends at the start. The first seven days, they're silent. They sit with him and and, and do good ministry. But when they open their mouths, it's like a curse on Job. So Job's struggling through this. Why did this all happen? And his friends, they're actually quoting scripture at him. I mean, Deuteronomy makes it real clear. If you do what's right, you'll be blessed. And if you do what's wrong, you'll be cursed. So they're saying, Job, surely you've done something wrong. You must have committed some offense. And Job's saying, no, I am blameless. And we know the story in Job 1. We know he's blameless. But Job is constant. He wants a court case with God. He wants God to come before him. He wants to present his case And make sure everyone knows he's not done anything wrong. But these friends keep saying, no, you must have done something wrong. Because we know that storms come on those who've done wrong. Not, But Jesus tells us a little bit later, no, the storm comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the story goes on. And and finally God shows up to speak in chapter 38. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of Job, I want to read in verse 38 and see the response. Job wanting this this hearing from God, and finally, after all this time, God shows up, and this is what he says. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Some of you may be in the midst of a storm right now, and maybe this is a word for you. He said, Who is uh, that that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand, who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said... This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. And on and on it goes over the next couple of chapters. God finally responding to Job, but not giving the answers that Job wants. Instead, he begins to tell the creation story. Now we talked about the creation story last week, that God's the one who has made all things. And because he's created this world and created us, then his command for the way of life is the best way of life for us to follow. He invented it. He created it. He knows how this thing works. It's interesting. Here's Job in the midst of the suffering. And I don't know. I'd expect a more compassionate response out of God, wouldn't you? Job, here's what's happening. Let me let you in on this heavenly drama that's been going on. You've been faithful, but that's not what God says. What does he say? Who do you think you are? Who are you to know all the answers to all this? Were you there when I created this? It's like he opens up to Genesis 1 and reminds him of the story and says, can't you trust the creator of the world? Again, not the most pastoral response I would hope God would have, but yet this is the response that God gives in what seems to be helpful to Job. It's as if 
Well, Isaiah says something similar in Isaiah chapter 55. Let me read just uh, briefly from this passage. Isaiah 55, uh, verse 9. Isaiah says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now that passage doesn't really bring relief, does it? There's a sense in which you can kind of give it over to God. And those with simple faith, it's like, just trust God in this. But if you're walking through something like Job's walking through, is it really helpful to hear, don't worry, God's got it covered. He knows better than you do. It doesn't bring the relief that we tend to want. It doesn't bring that short-term answer that we're looking. Because I don't know about you, but I ask the why questions when tough things come up. Why has it happened to me? Why? I've been faithful. and This is what Job's trying to say. And at the end of all this that God shares, Job finally gets a chance to respond to God. And I was shocked this week when I looked back at this. I was just looking through these all things passages. And when I looked up, God is the one who can do all things. I was shocked to find this in Job chapter 42. So let's read there. Job 42 verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Does anyone find that a bit surprising out of Job? After all he's been through, the response that God gives about creation, where were you in the midst of this? I'm not sure that would have been my response if I were Job. That's not my response to suffering. My response is, God, why is this happening? What are you taking me through? Did I, can I just confess and repent and you can finally switch and change all the, this can't be your will, why is this happening? So here's my question this morning. We've talked about uh, different uh, things that we proclaim about God. That as a child, I proclaim God is all-powerful. He can do all things. But I think there's a, a strong difference between me as a child proclaiming that, seeing the song, you know, how, how great is our God, all these songs that we sing. And on the other hand, Job, after all this has happened in chapter 42, coming and saying, I know that God can do all things. No plan of his can be thwarted. Aren't those different experiences? Aren't those different confessions? I think there's a difference. There's a world of difference between first-hand knowledge and second-hand knowledge, right? And I know this because I've been to seminary. I went to seminary. I was planning to be a preacher, and I went there to get an education, to come to more knowledge and to know more. And knowledge is a good thing, but here's the danger about knowledge. I left seminary knowing a lot about uh, things about God that outweighed the relationship and spiritual maturity I had in relationship with God. I, I knew all these quotes. I knew all this information in theology. I knew a lot of things about God. I just didn't know the one that I knew a lot about. The relationship wasn't to the degree that my head knowledge had increased about God. And it's possible, I'll tell you this from experience, it's possible to ace tests on Christology and eschatology and ecclesiology and not know the God who's the reason behind it all. And here's the danger. I love my time at seminary, but I read all these great authors and people over church history. I read Augustine and I read Martin Luther and John Calvin. I read N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis. I read all these people and all these great quotes in these books that they had written. And I thought because I knew the quotes they had written that I had the same depth of relationship that those authors had with God. When it had taken decades 
in relationship with God and learning about him to come to write some of the things they did. Sometimes we mistake knowing about God with knowing God. And it's one of the most dangerous things that we can be a part of is to just, and this has been a part of our history, right, in Churches of Christ. It's kind of acquisition of knowledge and information. If we can know more about God and have more Bible studies, then we'll get there. But there is a large difference. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing God. Does that make sense? In John chapter 8, Jesus speaks into this conversation, and it's a quote that you all can probably give as well. He says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But it's important to know the context. The verse before this tells you a lot about what that truth is and how you gain it. This is what he says, Jesus, in in John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This phrase, the truth will set you free, we hear that all the time. But the context is vital for you to understand. Because what Jesus says is, you can know all this in your head, But until you hold to my teaching and really become my disciples, that's when you come to know the truth. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, there's a huge difference between first-hand knowledge and second-hand knowledge of God. And that's the danger of seminary, and, and you can know God without actually knowing Him. You know what it took for me to graduate with my Master's of Divinity degree? The last part of my program... I had a a semester-long class that was preparing to answer two questions, basically. There were two case studies, and we were supposed to use all of the things we learned during all of our time there and bring it to bear on these two case studies. And then we were supposed to defend uh, our response to these professors who were there. It was a little bit daunting, and I knew these people were for me in the end. But that's basically what I had to do to get my degree. I have a friend who was ordained recently in a different denomination, an acquaintance of mine. And you know what he had to do to become ordained? He was asked all kinds of questions about the Bible. He had to tell them who God was. But you know what they never asked him? They never asked him, so how's your marriage? They asked him all kinds of questions about the Trinity and about all these different things. They never once asked him, have you ever had to forgive someone and show the grace of God to someone who's done wrong in your life in a serious way? They never asked him, have you ever felt weak and experienced a power greater than yourself, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, who's in some way come and changed your life? They never asked him any of those questions. They asked him, uh, hey, if they were to dig up 3 Corinthians at some point, should they add it to the Bible? But they never asked him, do you have any addictions that we should know about that might not be good for you to be leading a church while that's going on underneath everything? See, there's a huge difference between first-hand knowledge and second-hand knowledge. There's a difference between knowing my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, and knowing. Job 42, I know, God, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Which brings me back to that confession in Job 42. I've claimed for a lot of years that God is all-powerful. But at the end of Job 42, I'm just shocked to read these words, aren't you? I mean, I was shocked this week. I, I, I looked at this all things phrase, and when I looked at the several passages, there's Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, that'd be an exciting sermon to preach on. That's a God who can do all things. Or there's Matthew 19, like I read earlier, the rich young ruler passage. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Those are great passages. But I never expected to find Job 42 of all places. I've, 
I would never go looking in Job for this idea about God being all-powerful, especially after it all happens. But Job's confession is a confession that's been tested. It's not a first-hand or a second-hand experience of knowledge. It's a first-hand experience of walking through something and coming out on the other side. And it's much harder to make that second confession than the first, isn't it? And I say this to you, not informing you, but knowing that many of you have walked through this journey or maybe currently walking through this and wondering, will I be able to make the confession on the other side? See, some of you right now are living between these two confessions. You may have grown up or you came early in your faith to these, this knowledge about who God was. And you could proclaim God's all good and, and, and Jesus is Lord. All those things you needed to say to make a decision to follow him. But some of you are between that and coming to the other side. It's not your fault. It's that, just that life kind of demands things out of us along the way that we never imagined when we first made the confession. And what does it take to get to a place on the other side that we never wanted to go across this chasm, but we get to the other side and like Job, we're able to say, God, I don't get it all. And I don't know if there's part of Job that's saying, God, I know you can do all things and why haven't you? Maybe there's part of that that's there. I don't know. But there's something that where he's still able to confess this on the other side that brings me comfort. I don't have an answer for the question that people want to ask most to me. I get this question more than any other question. I think, how could a God be all good and all powerful and suffering still go on in the world and him not fix everything for us? And I don't have an answer for it, but I do find comfort in Job's words who can say this with much more integrity than I ever could. We've been through all of this. On the other side, is proclaim, he proclaims the same thing. Let's keep reading Job 42 as we read on. I know you can do all things, he says. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Listen to verse 5. My, er, my ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. I mean, can't you see what Job's trying to say? There was a time where I thought I understood. There was a time where I'd heard about you. But now I have seen you in the midst of this. Job knows God. Now he's had a firsthand experience. And here's the thing about all of this. You know, I believe that Satan can honestly proclaim that God is all-powerful. I mean, that's a statement of fact, right? That's a statement an early life statement. My God is so big, Satan can proclaim that. But there's certain things that Satan cannot proclaim. And that's this firsthand knowledge. In fact, I want to go to Psalms right now, and I just want to read a few of these passages, these images of God that, that, that yes, Satan can proclaim some things, but we as the people of God, as we walk through these things, I, my prayer is that we can get to a place we can proclaim these new things. Psalm 18 Verses 2 and 3. This is David who's been through his own turmoil. David says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is David. We talked about this in the Uncut series of what David had been through. He's been through this journey of this to this. He's been through this firsthand knowledge and what's his proclamation at the end? God has been my rock. Satan can't proclaim that. It's not an owned thing. It's not a personal thing for Satan. But for those of us who are the people of God who walk through this 
with him. Some of you can proclaim this this morning. God is my rock. Psalm 23, just a couple of psalms later, you know this so well. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You rod on your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David proclaims, you're my shepherd. And that is so different from my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. No, he's claiming it for himself, saying he's my shepherd through all this. Then Psalm 46, one more I want to share. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, anyone in the world can proclaim that God is all-powerful. And I don't know why everything happens in the world, and I wish there was an easy way to walk through the valley of death that David describes, but somehow on the other side, David and Job and the hosts of faith the cloud of witnesses that's passed before us, they're able to get to the other side and say, he's not just all-powerful, but he is my rock. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my deliverer. I don't ever want to go through the things it takes to be able to proclaim those things. Those are journeys we never want to go down, are they? But to be able to get on the other side and proclaim those things It takes sometimes going through the most difficult of circumstances to get there. i got to tell you, I was shocked when I read Job 42. Because I never would have thought Job would have said this. I just don't remember him coming to this place. But Job is able to say it. And I don't have all the answers. But what I know is that when it comes to those struggles in my life, to somehow land on this statement of Job, to land on these statements of David and to say, "I, I don't see it right now, but God, I need you to be my rock and refuge. Maybe those are psalms you need to carry with you in the week ahead. But I hope this has been a message of hope to you today. It's one thing to proclaim that he's all-powerful. It's another thing to experience it in our lives. And that doesn't mean that everything always works out the way we want it. That's not what it means for God to be a rock. It means he's our foundation, right? Like the Sermon on the Mount says, if you hear these words and put them into practice, if you're like the wise man who plants his house on the rock, that rock is our God, the God who can do all thanks. Let's pray together as we close. Father, right now, um, I thank you for those in this room who are through the valley of the shadow of death and can proclaim for some of the rest of us who can't proclaim it this morning, yes, God is my rock. He is my deliverer. He is my refuge. He has been there and he's walked me through these stages. But God, my concern more lies those who are in this place of knowing you and not wanting to go through the hard transition to the knowing that's so difficult and gut-wrenching.
God, I think I'm in this stage still in some ways. There's still a lot of refinement that needs to happen for me, but I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not still where I was leaving seminary, God, that you, you have taken me through things where I've been able to depend on you and seen that you've held, held firm in my life. God, through whatever stages are ahead, and for those who are struggling right now, I pray you would be a rock in this season. I pray that you would be a refuge, that you would be a deliverer, that you would be a healer, that you would be our great shepherd. God, Scripture proclaims these truths, and it's easy to say it. It's another thing to experience it, God. So, God, I pray a special measure of your comfort, of your shepherding, a a special measure of your firm footing in the lives of those who feel like life is on sinking sand right now. God, would you be the God who can do all things in our lives? And may we proclaim like Job has, that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We don't understand this world, God, as it is but we're learning to put our trust in you. So God, be our shepherd. Be our refuge. Be our rock this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. I'm Greg Hoffman, and I am honored with the responsibility of serving this church family as an elder and as a member of the governance team. I want to take a few minutes this morning to describe some ministry staff changes we are implementing to better support the church in achieving our mission and vision. But first, I want to highlight some of the great progress that has been made on several of our Gold Boldly initiatives. God calls all of us to a clear and simple mission to love God, love people, and serve others. He's also given us a big vision that our radical pursuit of this mission will lead to restored relationships and stronger families that will transform the very communities we all live in. This kind of transformation requires significant action. And I'm extremely thankful for and excited about how God is moving us to take the actions that are necessary to progress on a number of our Gold Boldly initiatives. Our small groups ministry has been rejuvenated with a significant increase in participation in multiple types of connecting point groups. And recently, many of these groups began making an impact in the lives of people in our community through the Just Go Challenge. We have seen the creation of the Faith at Home Center, the launching of Faith Path, which provides families with many discipling and spiritual formation tools. And we have shared in three congregational campaigns that have helped us focus on our walk of faith. The personal care and shepherding of the congregation has been greatly improved with three, with 14 people joining our elders as additional shepherding partners and through the continued work of Stephen ministers to provide care to individuals both in the church and in the community. We are also excited about things on the horizon that will continue to help us move toward our vision. In about 10 days, More than a dozen Greenville Oak members will attend the Orange Conference in Atlanta. They will learn about a wonderful new approach to children's ministry that we believe will be a great blessing to our family. 
and it will offer something new families will want to be a part of. On May 16, more than two dozen members will participate in the Celebrate Recovery Seminar in Frisco, which will help us make preparations for this ministry at Greenville Oaks. And we are confident God will use this ministry, the Celebrate Discovery, Celebrate Recovery, to help transform lives of people who are struggling. In June, we will begin to offer a Sunday afternoon instrumental worship service once a month. This will add another option to our already dynamic a cappella worship offering. Let me repeat that. In June, once a month, Sunday afternoon, an instrumental worship. There are many more exciting things to come. We are indeed thankful for how God is using these initiatives and confident he is leading forward. To continue making progress toward our mission and vision, we have to turn our desire for reaching people who don't have a relationship with Jesus into real action. One of these things we as your leaders can do to move us in this direction is to support the congregation with absolutely the best church organization we can develop. To do this, we have recognized the need to reconfigure many of our ministry staff roles. We believe the changes I will describe are now an essential part of enabling us to move forward in the future God has for us. Two years ago, Keith Maloney stepped out of the preaching minister role. We asked him to serve as our executive minister. He committed to that role for two years. He has worked very hard and done an excellent job of establishing better management structure and discipline among our staff. However, Keith is now ready to move to a different role. So effective May 1, he will become our congregational care minister. Keith will oversee the pastoral care and shepherding ministries, lead the connecting point groups, the new Celebrate Recovery Initiative, and guest services ministries. Over the past couple of years, Matt Mazza has demonstrated that he is exactly the right leader to step into the executive minister role and partner with Colin Packer in leading our ministry staff. So on May 1, Matt will begin serving our staff as executive minister. As I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, we have some exciting plans for our children's ministry. Marty O'Rear, who has been an incredible blessing to this ministry for the last eight years, will continue to serve as children's minister. But because the transition ahead will require more time and energy than one person can provide, we plan to hire an additional children's minister as soon as possible. This person will work alongside Marty to both lead us through this transition and lead our children's ministry into the future. We believe these moves will pay tremendous benefits to the church. For more than a year now, Greg Pertle has been tasked with leading our student ministry while also establishing our family ministry. He has done a commendable job, but we need Greg to focus on family ministry. This focus will help grow and develop this critical part of our vision, 
and provide positive coordination and leadership across children's and student ministries. One objective of the overall configuration of our ministry staff is to balance staffing to the needs and the sizes of ministries. In student ministry, that means we need to move from two student ministers to one. As a result, we will no longer continue the role in which Hillary Ramey has been serving. We are very thankful for the ministry Hillary has provided at Greenville Oaks and will wish God's richest blessing during a period of transition for her into her new career. Because Greg and Hillary are moving out of student ministry, we will immediately begin a process of identifying and hiring a strong new student minister to take the role in leading this ministry. When Greg returns from sabbatical in late May, he will resume full leadership of our student ministry until the new person is hired. Between now and the end of May, we will continue to depend on our many great volunteers along with the help of our other ministers to make sure all essential activities, programs, and events are carried out as planned. Once the new student minister starts, then Greg's focus will shift to his new role as family minister. Galen Jones will continue to serve the church and our community through spiritual direction and counseling services, discipleship training, individual leadership development. Galen will serve as our spiritual direction and discipleship minister. Finally, we are blessed to have Colin Packer and Adam Looney to continue serving in their current roles. Colin is lead and preaching minister. Adam is disciple as uh, worship minister. I know this is a lot to communicate at one time. Our elders will be available this afternoon from 2 to 4 in room 180, the ENF portion of that to answer any questions you may have. Changes, change is seldom easy. Even those that bring great promise for the future. But we are convinced that God is at work at Greenville Oaks and will continue to be as we move forward to realize the vision he has given us. We are also confident that these actions will help us become all that God intends for us to be. And we ask for your prayers and support for all concerned during this time of transition. Let's go to the Heavenly Father in prayer. Dear Father God, creator that we, of all that we know and are, we know that you have a plan for all creation and that plan is for as many of us as possible in this world to know you and to be your children. We ask that you continue to guide, direct, and bless us as we be a part and a greater part of your plan here and now. I pray that you be with all in this transition, that you provide care, concern, opportunities, guidance, that you bless us as we go forward. Bless our staff, 
and all of us that join with them in pursuit of the task ahead. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We know you love us. We know you are with us. We know you're guiding. Continue to help us to see that. Thank you for loving us and making us yours through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And amen. Amen. We'll be standing now for our benediction. May the God whom Job claimed could do all things, may he be your refuge, may he be your rock, may he be your shepherd this week. May we love God, may we love people, and may we serve others. Go in peace.